There's crispy, and then there's crispy, er. Try our new and improved Tyson crispy chicken strips. Crispy just got crispy, er. Everyone, welcome to HBCU 468, the Roden Fellows Podcast. My name is Whitney Brownson, and I'm a senior journalism major at Hampton University in Hampton, Virginia. And I am also here along with a couple of other fellows, and I'm going to let them introduce themselves now. Hey guys, it's Randall Williams checking in. I go to Hampton University, um, so I'm glad to be here. Hey guys, it's Kevin Perez Jr. from Bowie State University. How you doing? I'm good, Kevin. Thanks for asking. Well, I wanted to ask you guys a little question that's been circling around Twitter and the internet. People are trying to say that Venus Williams should retire. So, what do you guys think about that? I don't know. I don't think she's had as much success in recent years, and uh, I think she should, she could have a farewell tour. I don't know what that would look like on a tennis perspective, but.、Um, But I think it would be nice to have a farewell to Venus before she bows out, and not just like a sudden announcement, you know? No way. Okay, okay. If she does retire, at least like Randall said, go out on a, on, you know, on, a, on a graceful way. Go out on top. Go out, you know, where people can congratulate you on what you've done in your career.、Um, so just don't go out because you know you're dealing with injuries, this and that. But you should go out on a positive note, the Kobe Bryant esh type. Well, I don't know. I think. She should do whatever she's most comfortable with. In all honesty, if she feels as if she needs to retire because of injuries and things of that nature, then go ahead. We're not going to be mad at you at all. We want you to be healthy for as long as possible. But I'm not going to lie. I kind of agree with the graceful exit thing. Like go out on a win, or maybe even I don't know, win a doubles tournament with her sister. Yeah, th- yeah, that's exactly what I was thinking. So I kind of want to see her play with Serena one more time before she exits. So thanks for that hot take, you guys. And before I get right into it, I want to say that it is a hundredth episode of the Roden Fellows podcast. And I know we just started, but I, in all honesty, that's a really great accomplishment. And I can say that. At least I think for myself, but I think we're all glad to be here. Glad to be here. I'm glad to be a part of episode 100. I think that's something、uh, like、I can put on my my resume. <laughs> <laughs> for sure, for sure. So today we'll be having some amazing conversations with each other and some guests. First, we're going to talk to Chester Rogers. He actually used to attend Grambling State University and played football for them, and he now plays for the Indianapolis Colts. So we're going to look at how he went from an HBCU to the NFL and what his keys to success are and what's next for the Colts. Then we're going to talk to Jamel Hill, and we're going to talk about her latest article for the Atlantic that is stirring the pot, and she argues that it's time for Black athletes to leave white colleges. So we're most definitely going to dive into that, discuss the pros and cons, how people are responding, how students are responding, and things of that nature. And then finally, we're going to touch on Nicki Minaj and whether or not we think she actually is retiring. So let's get right into it. The 2019 NFL regular season is finally here. So much happened in the five-week preseason, from helmet disputes to retirements messing up fantasy football leagues. Someone with a front-row seat to all of the magic and madness is Chester Rogers. Wide receiver for the Indianapolis Colts, he signed with the team as an undrafted free agent in 2016, and he's been turning heads and is competing for the slot spot on the team alongside primary receiver T.Y. Hilton and secondary receiver Devin Funches. Before joining the league, Rogers graduated from Grambling State University with a degree in business management. He walked onto the football team in 2012 and became Grambling's leading receiver in 2013 and 2014. He went on to establish the annual Chester Rogers Perseverance Scholarship Award for a well-deserving walk-on player at Grambling. Welcome to the show, Chester. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Oh, of course, of course. 
We're going to jump right into it. Did you feel that Grambling's football program gave you the best chance of making your NFL dreams a reality? Absolutely. Uh, I went through so many up and downs uh, in my time in Grambling, and I was undrafted, so and I, and I walked on at Grambling. So it's, it's kind of crazy how it all played out, but it definitely prepared me. Uh, what advice would you give student-athletes from HBCUs who are trying to make it to the league? Well, I mean, you know, coming from HBCU, you have, you know, the odds stacked against you. But honestly, you just have to you have to find something to separate yourself and, and just know that we always have to work harder than, you know, people that have different opportunities and PWIs. So um, just having that chip on your shoulder and then using it to fuel you. How did you, how did you determine that the wide receiver position was the best position for you? Did you ever consider playing quarterback? Yeah, well, I played quarterback, you know, my uh, beginning of my uh, career in high school. I didn't start playing receiver to sophomore year, and I just had a niche for it, and I, I took it from there, and I started, I just started honing my craft, and it was easy to me, so I just felt like that was my best, you know, decision to make. Going into college, a few teams wanted me to, um, you know, come play DB for them, but I knew my true position was receiver. Were there any extra steps that you took to, um, get to the NFL, or was it just hard work and perseverance? That's exactly what it was, um, hard work and perseverance. I, I always thought I had to do the extra, not just what I was, you know, told to do, not just the workouts, you know, that was required. I had to put in the extra time, and, I mean, I didn't have any, honestly, I didn't have anyone to, to show me the ropes or guide me and say, you need to do this, you need to do that. I just really, you know, I've researched some things, I saw some things, and I, and I went out and, and I practiced them, and I saw it working. I saw it translating to when, you know, I got on the field, and, and I just kept doing that. And when it worked and I got opportunity, I made it to the NFL. Guys that were, you know, after me, like Chad Williams and, you know, Mar Martez Carter, they saw what I was doing, so they just picked it up and, and used it to their benefit. So what are the major differences between playing for an HBCU team and a professional sports team? <laughs> It's not. It's hard to compare that. Honestly, it's it's on a different level. Honestly, you know, it's obviously it's more professional. I mean, it's way more money. It's it's a business. You know, when it comes to professionals and you know HBC, you know, you're you're on your own. You're having fun. You know, you're in college. I mean, it's just it's, it's hard to compare. It. It's different. But I mean, I feel like we're all you know we all have the skills in HBCUs to play in the professional leagues. I, just like the PWIs. What did you think about Jamel Hill's article encouraging top black athletes to attend HBCUs instead of PWIs? Well, I think I haven't got a chance to uh, actually read it, but you know, I mean, as far as the topic, I totally agree uh, with there. Um, I would love to see you know more players going to HBCUs and you know enhancing the programs and you know bringing it back to life like it was back in the day when you had the Gramblers and the Jackson States and you know Mississippi Valley, all those schools, you know, just being on top. It wasn't Alabama for real. It wasn't, you know, all the other big schools they have now. It was the HBCUs. So I would love to see that come back. Now, going going uh, to your team, uh, the big news from the Colts, obviously, was uh, the retirement of Andrew Luck. Uh, what was your relationship like with him, and uh, how do you feel about Jacoby Brissett stepping up and taking the helm? Man, uh, I, I love Andrew Luck, man. That's that's a brother, you know, outside of this football thing, man. Um, since the, the day I came in back in 2016, he just – he took me under his wing like a little brother, man, from his everyday being here at work to me actually flying out to California where he lives in the off season and, and staying and staying with him and working out with him and, you know, just building that relationship, him and his wife, his, his dad. I mean, that's, you know, that's truly a brother, and I'm going to miss him, man. So it, it hurt me to see him leave, but at the same time, you know, his health is way more important than this game of football. But on the back end, we got Jacoby Brissett that, you know, He's a great guy, great quarterback. I got tons of confidence in him, and I feel like he's the right man to lead this team, you know, after Andrew. So we know um, we're not entirely sure what Andrew Luck is going to be doing, you know, with his retirement. But we heard that you, you know, did a little acting before you went to Grambling and everything. So if you could, you know, talk a little bit about that, and would you actually ever go back to it? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, when I when I finish, you know, the NFL, when I retire, I definitely plan on getting back into the acting, the acting, uh, my acting career, finishing. I like to finish what I start. It kind of took a, I took a pause from it, you know, I took a break from it, and I, I planned on going right back to it, but I ended up going back home and, and getting into sports, so now I'm here in the NFL. But yeah, I started when I was like 10 years old, back in my hometown. My first movie was Constellation with Billy D. Williams. 
I played young Billy D. Williams, and also it was Gabrielle Union, Hill Harper, and uh, the movie's called Constellation. And from there, you know, the director and the producers, they were like, hey, you got to move this kid to L.A., and <laughs> he needs to, you know, start a career in uh, acting. So me and my mom, we moved out there for like four years, and, you know, I, that's what I did. I, I had a job at the age of 10. That's really cool. Not many people can say that they were a child actor and now they're playing in the NFL. So you, you're just used to the big screen, and that's really amazing. And plus, you might be the first childhood actor that went to an HBCU and played in the NFL. That's got to be the first. Has to be. Yeah, no? That's yeah. crazy. <laughs> so before we let you go, um, we have a little section of the show we like to call you this or that. So Randall is going to ask you a few this or that questions. My first this or that question, you know, Nicki Minaj just actually announced her retirement. I'm wondering, um, Nicki Minaj or Cardi B? Uh, I'm going to go with, I'm going to go with Cardi. I like Cardi, man. Uh, <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a Nicki Minaj fan base. Don't kill me, but yeah, I'm going to go with Cardi on that one. <laughs> wonderful, wonderful. Uh, so now I want to I want to talk about video games for a little bit. Obviously, Madden just released and uh, 2K just released as well. Are you a 2K guy or is it is it all Madden because you're actually in the game? Honestly, man, this is probably the first year I've played Madden, like truly played it and tried like to play the season out. But I'm I'm usually a 2K guy. Like once I leave the facility, once I'm done with football for the day, I try not to <laughs> I try not to be around football. It's not studying. I, it's too much football can be a lot, so I play basketball. That's very Got understandable. It. Very. Yeah, yeah, I can imagine being at the facility all day gets uh, a little overwhelming. Yeah. And then uh, I'll say uh, my my last question is, um, you know, the movie It is releasing, or It 2 is releasing. Um, are you afraid of clowns? <laughs> I'm not. <laughs> I'm, not a, I'm not afraid of clowns, but I think It would probably be the one that'll make me afraid of clowns. Uh, that, that guy's creepy, man. <laughs> and I'm excited to go see the new movie, man. I just seen that on the commercials like two days ago. I didn't know it was coming out. So, yeah. Yeah, man. Uh, Pennywise is menacing. He's a little too tall for my liking. I don't know what I would do if I saw a seven-foot clown. Yeah, man. Um, big old hit. I'd be scared. <laughs> Yeah, so, no, no, sir. Okay, well, I don't know about y'all, but I will, yeah, I will not be seeing it, but we're going to end the conversation there. Um, thank you so much again for coming on the show. Um, if our listeners would like to learn more about what you're doing, you know, follow you on your journey with the Colts and everything, how can they follow you? Oh, I got, um, I got Instagram and I got Twitter. Like I said, I just got it back. Um, my Instagram is Chester Eighty Rogers. I will be back active on that this week, and my Twitter is I want to say Chester Rogers Eighty. So it's kind of backwards. Instagram Chester Eighty Rogers. Twitter Chester Rogers Eighty. All right, great. So we're going to take a short break, and when we return, we'll talk with Jamel Hill about why she thinks it's time for black athletes to leave white colleges. Stay tuned, and thank you so much again, Chester. Thank you for having me. we spent a lot of time debating and discussing how HBCUs can survive and thrive. Nearly a year ago, we launched a series addressing this question, and we heard suggestions from students, alumni, and HBCU administrators. Last week, Jamel Hill offered a suggestion. Her latest story for The Atlantic is titled, It's Time for Black Athletes to Leave White Colleges. She argues that if top black athletes attended HBCUs instead of predominantly white schools or PWIs, Historically, black colleges and universities would benefit greatly and increase their sustainability. She highlights the plight of black athletes in predominantly white spaces and the benefits these athletes gain from attending black institutions in predominantly black places. Hill also mentions our very own Bill Roden and an account in his book on the exploitation and empowerment of black athletes 
$40 million sleeve. Mr. Roden will also be joining us to add perspective on the history of black athletes and HBCUs. They are both driving, so you may hear some background noise, but welcome to the show, Jamel and Bill. Uh, thanks for having me. Always a pleasure to share the airways with Jamel <laughs> and, 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 and the highways, as it turns out. <laughs> Absolutely. So, Jamel, before we dive into your article, we wanted to congratulate you on your engagement and all the projects that you're involved in. You're a staff writer at The Atlantic. Um, You host the podcast Jamel Hill is Unbothered on Spotify, and you're writing a book, which is all so exciting and so amazing. So we were just wondering, how do you balance it all? Um, Some days are better than others, that's for sure. Um, Generally speaking, you know, I think this is an exciting time for me just because I get to use kind of my versatility on a lot of different platforms. So I guess the the, the short way to sum up um, the answer to your question is usually not very well. <laughs> now, as HBCU students, I feel like, and just college students in general, we can really understand that because we're balancing home life, schoolwork. Some people are balancing sports along with everything, so we most definitely understand. <laughs> yeah, it's not easy for anybody, that's for sure. Hey, Jamel, it's Kevin from Bowie State. One thing I wanted to ask you was, how do you deal with all the negative feedback that you get? Like, I see all the feedback that you deal with on Twitter, all the criticism and everything. How do you, like, deal with that? And, and then you have, like, these awesome clapbacks. Like, do you, like, think of it on the, on the spot like that? Like, tell me about that. I only take Twitter so seriously, I mean, I think generally speaking, it's been a great platform for journalists just because I think it's allowed a lot of writers that maybe people would not have known before to be exposed on a on a bigger platform. And it certainly opened up, you know, my exposure in terms to some of these other writers and just other funny generally people. But, you know, I mean, some of it is just practice. I mean, I've been getting hate mail since I was in college. So really the only thing that changed was the delivery method. It went from snail mail to email. And now it's just Twitter and Facebook and other parts of social media where people can just get to you a little bit more immediately. And what I've always told myself is, one, you know, they're coming from an uninformed, usually angry place. They don't know me. They would never say it to my face. And I've said repeatedly, it don't change what direct deposit is. (laughs) So what am I getting upset about? That doesn't change. Paycheck still cash the same, whether they like me or not. So to be, to invest myself in what other people think, it would be kind of fruitless. And, you know, they, in terms of the clapback, I mean, usually those are pretty on the fly. I like to have fun with them. But even while I don't, you know, necessarily take it to heart, it's more annoying than anything. But when I got time, I got time. And since you wanted this attention, I'm very happy to give it. I really like that response. <laughs> if you want the attention, I'm going to give it to you. <laughs> that's a quote. That's, that's the whole, that's the whole, a lot of people, uh, they, t- they tweet you, they email you, they say stuff to you with the expectation you'll never say anything back. And then when you do, they kind of lose it. So I like to keep them off balance by sometimes just like responding back just so they know that, yeah, I, I, I'm on. Yeah, it's uh, it's really refreshing to see that on the on the timeline when you have someone who responds and it's not just like an, an empty. When someone else is replying to you, it's not just like, oh yeah, they just said what they said and they went viral. But to see you tweet back with heat is always really exciting. I wanna I wanted to ask um, how how has life changed for you transitioning from the Atlantic? I mean, from ESPN to the Atlantic. What, what's just what's that been like? I think the biggest transition has honestly been how I legislate my time. You know, uh, uh, even though I was doing a daily TV show and when I, uh, the last television aspect of my ESPN career, I left was doing SportsCenter. And even after that, still doing a lot of TV, obviously uh, writing for the Undefeated. My schedule is on steroids <laughs> like now. You know, it was, it was different when I was at ESPN where it was just a regimented time that I would have to, you know, be in studio or, you know, every day was kind of the same. But in this new iteration of my career, there's a ton of different things that could be going on every day. I mean, there's just a lot because I, I'm, you know, in addition to writing for The Atlantic, I'm also managing two businesses. I mean, my podcast is a business and, you know, Unbothered is a corporation. I also have a, a production company that I started with one of my good friends. And so between the writing, the podcasting, the production stuff, now the book, that's a lot on my plate. And so it often 
turns my day into complete chaos every day. So, I mean, that's kind of the bigger difference. And, of course, naturally, when you leave a corporation that's like ESPN, there's a certain amount of freedom that does come with that. And it's not to say that I was a, I was suppressed at ESPN, but it is to say that there's just different responsibilities now, and with those different responsibilities come different freedoms. But I, I still do get a kick out of the fact. In fact, it happened to me today when people say, oh, I watch you every day. And I'm like, do you watch me every day? Because this, you know, I've been at ESPN in almost a year. <laughs> but, mm-hmm. but they still come up and say that to me, which I I uh, find amusing. Um, I don't correct them. I just say, all right, thanks for watching. So speaking of having a little bit more freedom with um, how you express yourself, I wanted to talk a little bit about the article that you had just posted on your Twitter and everything. What motivated you to write that article? Well, this uh, this goes back away. Uh, I actually, when I first started talking to The Atlantic late last year, and I had a meeting with one of the senior editors and also the, the editor-in-chief, Jeffrey Goldberg, he asked me to, to tell him three or four story ideas that I had that I would love to do for The Atlantic. And I actually came with a list of 11 ideas. <laughs> and so one of the 11 that I listed was I wanted to do a, a magazine-style piece on what life would look like or what would happen or just play with the idea of you know, the top black athletes in the country going to HBCUs. Um, some would use the word returning to because, as Bill knows and as you guys know, that that used to be the case. That was the reality, that the only place black athletes had to go was to HBCUs. And so they love the idea. It's something I've been working on since, again, late last year. And I guess I wonder this, you know, seeing as how things are, in college football and college basketball because the piece was centered around those two particular sports as they're the highest revenue generators for the NCAA. I wondered if black athletes would be better served being at HBCUs given the original mission of HBCUs, given the climate in this country, being that it's polarizing and on a lot of these predominantly white campuses, athletes are much more segregated than people probably even realize and sometimes for some, not for everybody, it could be a interesting adjustment depending on where they come from. If they're coming from predominantly black neighborhoods and cities, and then they go to campuses where that's not the case, there's going to be a natural tension there. And just kind of this uh, sort of dawning process that happens where I think a lot of them wind up figuring out pretty early that if not for the entertainment that they provide, how they might be looked at outside of that space of entertainment, that entertainment, of course, being sports. So all that was kind of running around my mind and just looking at the economic shape that a lot of HPCUs are in, it seemed like kind of a good time to write that. And I know we wanted to kind of peg it or for it to drop kind of right around the start of college football season. So to the October issue of the magazine, and uh, as you guys know, it's already, you know, online. So it has created a lot of discussion. Not surprisingly, it's a lot of people who clearly did not know anything about HBCUs. And so the feedback has been, it's been interesting, to say the least. Hey, Jamel, it's Kevin. Um, one thing I really want to know is, did you consider going to an HBCU, and how did you like Michigan State? Well, so here's the, the backstory, because I did get, I mean, that was one of the criticisms that I got is, you know, how dare you write this when you didn't even go to HBCU and all this other stuff. But I like to think that there is space for people who went to predominantly white institutions like I did to still, why would I not be supportive of HBCUs regardless of where I went to? But at any rate, so true story is like my college choices were uh, Michigan State, Michigan, Clark Atlanta, or or FAMU. And I was super close to going to FAMU because at the time they had just started a brand new journalism program that was well-funded and a mentor of mine was going to be running that program. So things were kind of set up for me to, to do that. Now, it would have been a little bit more of a struggle financially just because I had gotten an academic scholarship. If I stayed in the state of Michigan, that academic scholarship would have covered, you know, all tuition and book and uh, some other things. But if I went out of state, it would have only covered the tuition 
and room and board if I stayed in state. But if I went out of state, it would have only covered the tuition part, and I would have had to come up with the money for room and board. Anyway, all that being said, you know, of course, I was willing to do work study, other things that I felt like I probably could have made up the difference. But, and this is <laughs> not to necessarily put her on the spot, but I guess by nature of the conversation, she will be. My mother did not want me going to FAMU. And because um, FAMU was the best thing, because I, I was under the impression, and it was based on people that I had known um, who were in my life, who I was under the impression that you had to major in journalism if you wanted to become a journalist. Now, obviously, years later, I found out that that wasn't true. So the two schools, that's why it boiled down to those, because Clark Atlanta did not have a journalism program at the time. Michigan got eliminated because they eliminated their journalism program, which left Michigan State and FAMU. And my mother didn't want me to go to FAMU because, like a lot of mothers, when they face that transition of being a high school, you know, their high school graduating senior, when they're going off, unfortunately, the choice becomes just as much as as about them as it does for them. She thought that Florida was too uh, she'd never been to Tallahassee. She didn't know anything about FAMU. And so it became kind of a fight. And so I gave in, even though I had to start, as, you know, as I've been discussing this article for the last couple of days. Actually, I didn't really have to give my mother a say-so because she wasn't paying for any of my college. I mean, I love her, but, like, I could have just taken off and gone to Tallahassee. That would have been sad. But um, at any rate, uh, she was not on board with it. And so then it became Michigan State. And I and I don't want to, certainly, I don't want to make it seem like Michigan State was, like, some last choice. I mean, I, there was a lot of things I loved about the school. I'm not regretful that I went there, certainly, but... You know, it, it wasn't as if uh, HBCUs weren't on my radar at all. I was very close to going to FAM. Like a lot of kids who grew up around the time that I did, my most significant encounter with HBCUs was through the Cosby Show in a different world. And, you know, I wanted an HBCU sweatshirt and gear so bad. I, I can't profess to have known a whole lot about them, but I was just like, you know, being from Detroit, and which is a city that's like 80, 85% black, it just made all the sense in the world. So that's how I wound up. That's a very long story of how I wound up at Michigan State. Yeah, that's a, it's a great story, though, I would say. Um, and I think a lot of people can relate to it, really. Hey, Bill, I'm, I'm wondering, uh, you've covered this for a long time, I'm wondering with HBCUs being underfunded and under-resourced and pretty much under everything else, how can HBCUs compete with, you know, Power 5 conferences and Power 5 schools? Well, well they can't. And, and, and Jamel, um, again, uh, the piece you wrote was, was really outstanding. And it's, you know, basically you, you did what we're supposed to do as journalists is provide food for thought and debate and, and all that. I mean, I've been thinking about this for years. To answer your question, Kevin, they, they can't compete. They, I mean, they just can't. Not just HBCUs. A lot of schools, you know, there's a big plantation, and there's only the Power Five schools that are in the big house, and all these other conferences, including HBCUs, are outside the kingdom. So a lot of schools can't compete with Kentucky and Alabama and all that. It's not just HBCUs, right. but I think about it, too. You know, I mean, I, I just thank God every day that I went to an HBCU, but I know that, you know, I was thinking about that today, that fortunately I wasn't that highly recruited coming out of high school in Chicago. My high school coach had gone to Iowa with Coach Banks and Morgan, and the way most black schools did it, they would do it kind of like, pick up the phone, hey, hey, I got a kid for you. And I was like sleepwalking through school, but trust me, and they, t- they took me on like, you know, Northwestern campus or, or, or University of Missouri's campus or UCLA or Stanford. Now you know this, I mean, to be a hell of a guy <laughs> to be able to look through those buildings and say, now nah, I think I'm going to go to Morgan. I mean, you have to be a hell of a, you'd have to be like a Martin Luther King type of person to be, to have all these white people telling you how great you are and how wonderful you are, going on the campus, have all the, you know, all the stuff that goes on. And then to still, after all that, the money under the, t- you know, to go back to, no, I'm going to Grambling. So I, I understand it, but the question that you ask in the piece is a very profound question, but I think it also speaks to our level of, you look at, you know, the undefeated. I mean, I mean, a lot of people did not go to HBCUs. They went to, you know, some went to Ivy League schools, some, you know, and, and people made a conscious decision not to go to HBCUs. So I think, Jamel, what you really did, what I think you, you really are doing is creating a much-needed conversation in our community about how we feel about, you know, black institutions and the white man's ice being colder and, 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 you know, when do black folks who went to black schools step up financially? So, I mean, you really open Pandora's box. 
So, Bill and Jamel, do you guys think that having elite athletes at these schools will increase the financial stability of HBCUs, or is there honestly more to that conversation? Because I know with what um, Bill was just saying about, you know, the big facilities and the nice weight rooms and things of that nature. So, will having these athletes really help the finances for these schools? Well, uh, you know, if I, if I had one regret uh, with my piece is that I should have really taken things a step further. And by that I mean this, is that the real conversation, and this is where I think HBCUs have a potentially tremendous advantage to get uh, enrolled with some of these athletes, is, and it, this is out-of-the-box, pie-in-the-sky thinking to some degree, I mean, I, I think really the best chance is to perhaps just break off from the NCAA entirely. At some point, somebody's going to do that because a lot of these colleges, especially like if you're the, the SEC, I'm actually shocked you haven't done it already. And I think part of the reason that they probably haven't is because they probably aren't invested or want to create any kind of pay structure for the athletes. But I think if you're HBCU, you find some really deep pockets, a lot of deep pockets, you go to boosters, you go to people, you break off from the NCAA, you create your own pay structure and compensation structure for athletes, and that will be the thing that can lure them there. That's not to say that that's not an overnight process. It doesn't happen that way. But under the current NCAA structure, what you're proposing in terms of would it really change things is that it's gotta, it can't be one or two. It's got to be a complete exodus because if you look at how most of these schools became the powerhouses, it wasn't something that happened over a year or two years um, or whatever, even and like something like basketball might be a little quicker to happen. It was a 10, a 15, a 20-year process of this happening. Um, but it's hard to debate the amount of money that black athletes have made for, you know, college sports, obviously talking about football and basketball. It's absurd. We're talking about billions of dollars. And the reason why I say a break from the NCAA is something that should be seriously considered is because the one thing that research has shown is that there is a considerably different mindset when it comes to pay for play for athletes between white folks and black folks. The majority of black people think that athletes should be compensated. And I can just say just in my own reporting, one of the questions I asked everybody I talked to was, do they think athletes should be paid? And I can tell you 70 to 80%, whether it be coaches, administrators, all thought that black athletes should be paid, which means that if they did set up that structure or if they were able to look at those athletes, that conversation is already far more advanced among black people than it is at predominantly white institutions. Most of them do not want to play athletes. So I think that right there is kind of a window into something, but there's no question that when it comes to the money, the television stuff, you know, people have this idea that somehow the TV deals and all that stuff won't follow. TV, as, as anybody knows, it's like they go where the audience is and they go where they think there will be eyeballs. And as a result, that makes this process kind of easy to shift. I mean, as I have told many people who have read the piece, you think of Zion Williamson, if he went to Howard, that the cameras weren't going to follow him? We are going to stop covering him? No, he would have just brought him with him. And when you're able to generate that level of a consistent platform and audience, well, I think it makes some things interesting and open up, and opens up some doors. The reason why I think I should have gone further, the other reason with it, with a break from the NCAA, because here's the thing, if there is an exodus to NCAA, or to HBCU schools, the other problem is that still within the NCAA structure, and right now, if you look at how the NCAA distributes money, see, that would be the next fight, is now that if, you know, HBCUs, if they had these athletes, would the NCAA actually do right by them and give them the money that they deserve because they determine the payouts per school and per conference. So just food for thought, it's complicated, but yet I still think if the, those first steps happen, at the very least on campus, and especially from a donor standpoint, People tend to donate money to schools when they feel like programs are successful, or even some of the former athletes. I mean, we've seen Carmelo Anthony. He gave millions of dollars to Syracuse. Trayvon Green has, has given a ton of money to Michigan State. Steve Smith uh, built an entire athlete academic center to for Michigan State. So, I mean, if those types of athletes are going to these schools, at the very least, you would think that they would probably have a very vested interest in rebuilding a lot of their facilities. Absolutely. Absolutely, I completely agree. Um, I'm wondering. I, I guess um, I, at Hampton, we just got you know Monet Davis, and that's been a really big deal. Hampton University has marketed her really well. Do you think that she's an outlier 
Um, no, not necessarily. I mean, it, I can't say I was terribly surprised just in the sense that what people didn't know because of her fame was that her sport that she loved the most was actually basketball. And so I, she had dreams of like going to UConn and these other things. And I, I interviewed her years ago, but just given her sensibility and her level of maturity, frankly, at her age, she is somebody that I really wasn't surprised made that kind of move. But I think from an optics standpoint, you know, for sure, given the level of attention that she is able to generate, anytime you can take that attention and shift it to kind of the campus overall and the school overall and, and what it means, you know, I, I think that's just, at the least, it's sort of a fabulous PR boost uh, for a school that has such a storied and rich institution. Hey, Jamel, it's Kevin. So at my school at Bowie State, our starting quarterback name is Gashton Cooper. He's a transfer from a PWI school. But at that school, he was recruited to be a quarterback, and they tried to switch, switch him to be a wide receiver. And he was telling me about how he thought he was better than the quarterbacks, and the defense knew he was better than the quarterbacks. But the coaches, they were still trying to switch, switch his position. They didn't know why. And he was telling me how he thought it was a little bit of racism because, well, other, other quarterbacks were white, and they all knew he was better than them, but he, understood, like, he didn't understand what was going on. So what do you think about that, that like that his, his circumstances? Well, I think it's something that happens a lot, um, unfortunately still, despite the fact that there's clearly some proof in the fact that obviously black people can play the position, and there's a, a lot of black people who certainly played that way in the NFL. So I really think that um, it's not surprising. Uh, the only unfortunate part for me is that, and, and I'm glad he was at your school, um, the only unfortunate part I think for me is that in some ways it, it kind of is a mixed bag when I see, you know, HBCU kind of like becoming that second choice or that I don't have anything else or anywhere else to go, so I'm coming here. Or, you know, I just, I wish a lot of these guys, when they are recruited by some of these institutions, would do, frankly, a little bit more research to figure out, is that system for them? You know, I was watching, it reminds me of a situation I was watching last chance you, um, the latest season. I, I finished the season already. It's definitely one of my favorite shows. And there was a kid on there who went to Georgia Tech, you know, quarterback, and he was just like, the one of the reasons he left and it didn't work out was because he didn't like the fact that they, you know, their offense. Everybody knows that basically they out there running the wishbone, right? I was just trying to figure out how he didn't know that or did he think it was going to be different for him? I mean, it's just like all the quarterback does is hand the ball off, so I don't get it. At any rate, there you'd be surprised that in that recruiting process when kids are going through it, like they believe in what they're being sold. So it doesn't surprise me that that's the case. And, you know, I know how... Uh, athletes are they're super confident they always think it won't be them that they're different that they can beat out whoever i'm like you gotta look at that depth chart and more important look at those star rates because you know if you don't look at that stuff and you think that it's going to be different for you you might you might be hit with a really harsh reality once you get there Speaking of just like, you know, college athletes and everything, Shakespeare Hill, the quadruple double queen who actually just graduated from Grambling, she had said a statement that she believes it doesn't matter where you go, just put in the work and put in the effort. So how do you feel about that statement, especially considering in the past people from HBCUs have gone on to have successful careers in the NFL and things of that nature. So what do you think about that statement? I think she's right. I mean, I, and that's that's why when when people throw exposure as a reason why a, a top tier or um, a good athlete shouldn't go to HBCU, that's why I think that's just so misguided, misguided and ill-informed. I'm not trying to say that there won't be certain things you will have to disprove because you did go to a HBCU, and of course there will be. But that's just the nature of being black. Frankly, it wouldn't matter where you were; you'd have to disprove probably something. But no, I mean she's correct. Is that Look, at these days, look at the number of undrafted guys who make it in the NFL. Look at Bill Belichick is probably one of I mean, he's probably the greatest NFL coach of all time. And I swear he finds an undrafted, an unknown, an unsomebody out of somewhere every year. Okay, so they're going to find you if you're talented. And I think a lot of times because kids are a little bit naive when this, this recruiting process starts or just because when they pick a school, they have so much love. And a lot of times they put these schools on a pedestal. 
they think that the school makes them, and it's not that way. It's the other way around. Yeah, as as I said, Zion Williamson could have played on the moon, and he was still going to be drafted number one. It didn't matter. He didn't need Duke to make him the number one pick. And I know he's a special case because we're talking about somebody who's the number one pick. But there are so many examples of this case that they will find you if you're talented because that's just kind of the way the structure is set up. Again, I'm not saying it's going to be easy, but they'll definitely find you if you're talented. They, they would probably, you know, punish you, say, if Zion went to Howard. You know, they'd give you the whole not playing against great competition and maybe yeah. try to knock yeah. you down a pay. So they, they would try to punish yeah. you. But the bottom line is that, and you've got to look at it, that they would just be trying to make an example out of you to say, don't get this in your mind, <laughs> that this is the way to go, because we will punish you economically. But if you're good, if you're, you're right, you can play on the moon. And if top five guys would have gone to uh, Alcorn State instead of Duke and all of a sudden got to the Final Four, the way our business is, that becomes a great story. And you, you get the attention. So, But I think our kids are so, and the parents are so brainwashed uh, about all things black that we just have a lot of work just in terms of embracing black institutions, embracing each other, embracing black people. Yeah, that's a whole other. You can write, that'll be your second, you know, part two. Yeah, well, that's the other thing that I sort of found while doing this story is that I was talking to, you know, one player about it who, you know, was at an HBCU, and he would say how he had never even heard of most of the HBCUs. Like, he was unaware. And, and you know, as shocking as that may be to some people, depending on what part of the country you're in, there's a lot of black people who do not know about HBCUs and certainly do not know about the strong history and long le- legacy when it comes to sports. And, you know, Bill is right about that, I mean, there is, uh, and people in my piece that I quoted, they talked about this, there is this mentality that we have that HBCUs are just not as good. Like, your education won't seem the same, or they worry about how it'll look when you go into the workforce. And I'm not saying that there won't be some companies that look and say, like, oh, you went to Hampton, where's that? I'm not saying that that won't be the case. You will face some of that. That's true. However, that being said, it's like, that shouldn't be used as an excuse, not to go there because it does get back to that feeling of us feeling like that things that involve us or where we're you know the majority in those situations that they're somehow inferior and that they're not considered as good and that's a mentality I think in a lot of things that we you know we have to to work on I mean especially we're talking about in sports I mean we can open up a whole nother can of worms when we start talking about like black agents and, and that whole thing because a lot of black agents face that there are black athletes that when they come out of college or when they're making that decision to go pro or they turn pro, they have a very hard time getting meetings with them because they see a big, either a bigger agency or a white agent and they think that's more credible than being with somebody who's black. So it's just, I mean, unfortunately, this is a mentality that kind of infects all parts of our lives. But it's definitely something that we have, we struggle with as a people is, is trusting and being harder on black people than we are on white people. Thank you so much, Jamel, for joining us on the show today. Hey, Jamel, thank you, thank you so much. No problem. Thank you for your thank time. You yeah, thanks so much, Jamel. said that she's retiring from music to focus on making a family with her boo, Kenneth Petty. She tweeted, I've decided to retire and have my family. I know you guys are happy now. To my fans, keep repping me. Do it till the death of me. In the box because ain't nobody checking me. Love you for life. The announcement shocked fans because she recently joined Megan Thee Stallion for a guest verse on her song Hot Girl Summer and released her single Megatron earlier in June. TMZ says she has several unreleased songs and still has studio time reserved. Minaj has 10 Grammy nominations, has sold 20 million singles as a lead artist, 60 million singles as a featured artist, and over 5 million albums worldwide, making her one of the world's best-selling music artists. 
So what do you guys think? Is she really retiring or is it a publicity stunt? Unfortunately, Nicki Minaj is not retiring. This is just another publicity stunt. If you follow Nicki Minaj, you know that her public relations, all that all that press that she's received lately has not been good, especially with the beef with Cardi B. And, uh, you know, although she just linked up with Megan, that song didn't pop the way that they expected it to. So, you know, it's a perfect time for her to go and be like, yeah, I'm retiring, whatever, whatever. And then she, when she's ready to come back, um, you know, all of her fans and, and the Barbies will will flock right back towards Nicki Minaj and she'll be right back rapping again. Honestly, I think it's just about getting attention, you know. I think, you know, for like the past decade, she's been like arguably the queen of female rap. But now I think you see like Megan Thee Stallion and Cardi B, they're like the leaders now. And you don't really hear too much about Nicki. So I think it's just more about just trying, you know, just steal some attention from them. Um, in all honesty, I don't think she's retiring either. I kind of think she just wanted to put that out there, you know, grab some attention. And then it's kind of like almost like the five seconds of fame type of thing. Although obviously she's a little bit bigger than that. But no, I don't think she's retiring. And but if she really was, what's the legacy she's going to leave on the rap game? For me, um, it's Randall. But uh, for me. I think she'll be known as one of the most successful uh, women in rap ever. But I think her biggest regret will be she did not welcome, she didn't, when she had, every single time she had the chance to welcome in another woman into rap, she didn't do it wholeheartedly the way that she could have. I mean, the she she was right there to pass the torch from, from her to Cardi B. And I mean, who knows what that would have done, but she didn't. And instead, I mean, Cardi B had two number one singles uh, for the, I want to say it was like the first woman since uh, Lauren Hill to have a number one in in rap, and Nicki Minaj could have been right there cheering her on, but instead that beef happened, and that's what that's what you know what we're gonna remember her for. Obviously she's she's a phenomenal rapper. I don't think she really switched subject subjects um, in her music the way that she could have, but she's she's a great rapper um, and she sold really really well, but. Um, if, if this is truly the end, which again, I don't think it is, it's just another publicity stunt for her to make her return in the future. Um, if this is truly the end, then this is going to be a, uh, a bitter ending for her. Just to piggyback off what he said, like she's going to retire arguably greatest female rapper of all time. Like, like, it was like a decade straight where she just dominated. It was nobody on a level and nobody came close. But even if they did, she was still the top dog in the business. You know, I think she could have handled some things differently, like when Cardi B got her rise. Instead of, like, you know, beefing with her, you know, throwing shots at each other, she could have, like, um, pumped her up some more, you know, congratulating her. But other than that, I think she just remembers one, one of the best female artists. I think she's going to leave a great legacy on the rap game. I mean, in all honesty, to me, Pink Friday is still iconic. I mean, I know that came out in like 2010 or whatever, but it's just, to me, it's almost one of her best albums in all honesty. But to Kevin's point about saying that she's going to be like the greatest female rapper of all time, I don't necessarily agree with that statement. Thank you, Whitney. But Thank you, Whitney. If, <laughs> if she it's okay. is, and emphasis on if, she is the goat of female rappers. Who's going to take her place then? We know what Kevin's going to say. Kevin is going to say Megan. Kevin is a, is, a, is a huge... Honestly, Kevin might be a hot girl. And we keep it in the buck. <laughs> Kevin might just be a hot girl. Cardi B, Well, that's Ooh, not more from the Megan answer, in all honesty. Cardi B. Cardi B's Cardi B. I think, I think Cardi B has set herself up. But there are a lot of talented women in rap right now. You have Pierre Wack. You have Thank No you. Name has been killing it for years. You have you have Megan. Um, you guys can throw something there. You have Rico. Anyway, Megan's everywhere. Yeah, Rico, Nasty. But I think Megan is getting a lot of attention right now because she has that sound and she has that, that sexiness about her that everyone loves. But there mm-hmm. are other women who are killing it as well. I think uh, this is going to be, this needs to be a time where women in hip-hop uplift each other. It would be dope to see Megan and No Name and Megan and, and T.R. Wack and Megan and Rico Nasty or whoever or Cardi B and one of these people. Because, you know, Cardi B and, to me, Cardi B and Megan have that, that sexiness about them um, that makes people want to listen to them and no name who has bars for days and can rap with just about anybody 
she people people aren't really flocking to her the way that they are. So to see Cardi B and 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 Megan or or Tierra Whack uplift each other, that would be dope. Okay, so what is the impact do you guys believe she's had on Black female rap artists? Because she's gone honestly through a transformation. Since she first came out, you know, she was wearing all the crazy stuff, you know, the wigs, the costumes, and now she's kind of like mellowed out a little bit. But I feel like it did kind of set a path for, you know, like the Tierra Wax, for the Rico Nasties, because they have eclectic styles as well, but we don't view it as weird. Like we're like, oh, shoot, I low-key want to, you know, kind of be like them. So what do you think the impact is that she's had on black female rap artists? You know... I think I think her biggest impact will be similar to what Drake has done for for hip hop. You know, Drake has really opened up the the mainstream music line for for hip hop to be pop music, where it's on the radio and stuff like that. And for women, Nicki Minaj was a part of that as well. I think people often forget about that that she was a part of that um, with, with Super Bass and Make Me Proud and or Monster, where she really where she had that that insane verse. You know that that's gonna be that's gonna be how we remember her, and that's her impact, which is gonna be opening up the mainstreams. You know, she did not welcome people in the way that she did, the, the way that she could have. But I think that that at the end of the day, she opened the gates more. Um, even if she wasn't there to to say hi, how are you at those dates, she did open those gates a little bit wider for for these 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 women in hip hop today. Her impact is huge, not just on female artists, but like all women in general, like especially the youth. Like her wigs and the nails and the makeup and everything. You see, like girls nowadays, they all mimic that. And I think, um, especially like, and especially with uh, Megan Thee Stallion, she always calls her the goat. But they always looked up to her, so they look at the things she's done. They, and so they, it's like they're putting it to their own style, the things she was doing back then, with the twerking and this and that, all the things she was doing. And they're trying to make it into their own thing. She did have that impact. Whether or not she a goat, uh, don't know about all of that. Like, I'm really, I'm really like, not trying to hate on Nikki. I'm really not. Like, I think that she is an amazing artist, but it's just Nicki like, Minaj I feel like you can't, I just feel like you can't disregard people who set the path for her in the first place. You know, the Queen Latifah's. Say two times like, for the people in the back. You just can't do that. Say you just can't do that. We don't do that here. In the back with me. But I will say that she has had a lasting impact on the rap game and i mean she's always going to be you know in all of our phones granted i don't know something like a r kelly thing happened then it's like er, don't know about all that but she she's a very impactful artist and i think that we're going to i think we're still going to see some of her in the future i do so we're going to end the conversation there but that is all we have time for today and if there's anything you'd like us to cover or if you just want to leave us a comment Tweet us at the undefeated hashtag Rodenfellows. You can also contact us directly on Twitter. I'm on Twitter at wit underscore bit 98. That's W-H-I-T underscore B-I-T nine eight. And it's Randall speaking. You can find me on Twitter at my name, Randall Williams, but it has a change in there. R-A-N-D-A-I-L-W-I-L-L-I-A-M-S. That's R-A-N-D-A-I. L W I L L I A M S. And you can find me on Twitter at Kevin Paris Jr. at K E V I N P A R R I S H J R. All right. Thanks so much for listening to the Roden Fellows podcast. This show is produced by the wonderful Aaron Mathewson. And special thanks to Tarika Foster Brasby and the ESPN digital audio content team. I'm Whitney Bronson and I've been your host. Get all of the HBCU 468 podcasts as well as The Right Time with Bomani Jones and Morning Roast by subscribing to The Undefeated on the Listen tab of the ESPN app. Join us next week for another HBCU podcast and don't forget to make The Undefeated your go-to site for a soulful look at sports and entertainment. Have a great week, everyone.